Now, we turn to the 16th verse of Colossians 2, where Paul then draws a conclusion and then gives two more warnings after the first one he gave us in verse 8, where he said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in Him. So beware, be on guard, be careful. And that was the first warning. Now in verse 16, we see the second warning. Let no man therefore, on the basis of who Christ is for you, and in you, and on your behalf, Don't let any man, therefore, judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Verse 18, let no man beguile you, that's the third warning, of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head. Verse 19, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Conclusion. Three warnings. Conclusion. Verse 20. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ... And as believers, you are from the rudiments of the world. Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, rules, and regulations? Touch not, taste not, handle not is three references Paul would make to food. Which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh, if you then be risen with Christ. So today we look at these two additional warnings, and then we'll try to draw the conclusions Paul does in verses 20 through 23. So the first thing we look at, verse 16, is don't let any man judge you. Judge. In a bench trial, there are two of five tasks a judge is to do. One, he's to take all the facts, he or she, and then to use those facts to determine a verdict. That's either going to be you guilty as charged or not guilty. The second of five tasks, and the last task, is then to sentence the convicted criminal, criminal if the verdict is guilty, to a sentence of years in prison, or something appropriate to the crime. Here, there are self-appointed judges that are passing a sentence of condemnation on the church because the church is not governing their lives according to the standards that they deem necessary. Necessary for what? Well, in some cases in the New Testament, necessary for salvation. Like circumcision among the Judaizers. Christ is good, but if you want to be saved, you've got to become a Jew and you need to be physically circumcised. You may say that's probably not a threat for us. You may think, I think I can discern when somebody's trying to tell me that I've got to do something other than trust Christ in order to be saved. But the second one is necessary to please God. You must govern your lives according to these ordinances, these rules, these regulations, if you want to please God. And if not, then you're not pleasing to God. You're inferior. Paul prays in this book, as you remember, when he says that you would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He would pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will and wisdom and spiritual understanding and that this increase in the knowledge of God is what pleases God. So it's not the rules and the regulations that gives God pleasure. 
It's a heart that trusts God, and anything that flows out of that trust is included in what pleases God. But man-made rules and regulations are not necessary to please God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He that cometh to God must believe that He is and a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So faith, by grace, in Christ, who you are complete in, is what is necessary to please God. And the third way that these Judaizers would use these ordinances, these rules and regulations that are man-made, to say they are necessary for your holiness... In other words, if you really want to grow in holiness, if you really want to be sanctified and move forward, you need our regulations. When Paul says it's holding the head, in verse 19, that's the means of what? Increasing with the increase of God. It is alone Jesus Christ and nothing else. No rules, no regulations, no ordinances, just Christ alone. Now, what were, the, what were the means specifically they were using to try to pass condemnation, putting pressure on the church at Colossae? And maybe you felt that pressure before to conform to a list of rules like a checklist. Or you felt inferior. You felt you weren't pleasing God. You felt as if you were out of sync with God. Well, here they are. Paul uses the preposition in in verse 16. Let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Now the pressure on the church at Colossae was from two different angles. One, these shadows that Paul will call them were still happening when Paul wrote this text. Now could you imagine if the temple were here today? You and I might feel the need to get there. I mean, to really be close to God? The temple was still in Jerusalem. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the sacrifices, still going on in Jerusalem. The meat, the dietary laws, still happening with Jews. The feast days and the drinks, all still intact. And furthermore, the most powerful religion on the earth was Judaism. And here you are, a little bitty church, comparatively, in Colossae. Only mega church I find in the book of Acts is Jerusalem, and God said, you're too big. That's, that's not a dig against big churches. It's just they probably were smaller churches. And you've got this massive religion called Judaism, and they seem to be so pious, so connected, sacrificing, the pressure to go back to shadows would have been enormous. That's one angle. Really, that really covers both angles. The pressure from these pious Jews, the powerful religion on the earth, and then the pressure of still seeing shadows. So what's the pressure for us? Well, the pressure is in verse 17. And this is what Paul says about these shadows, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Shadows. So our first point with regard to no man judging you, beware of shadow chasers. Beware of a religion or a church of shadow chasers. If I were to find the Old Testament equivalent to this passage, I would go to Ecclesiastes 1.14 where Paul says, or uh, Solomon rather, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Vanity empty, vexation grasping for something, spirit, breath, wind. Solomon says everything under the sun apart from God is like trying to chase wind. And once you catch it, you have absolutely nothing. What does it mean to chase chase shadows? Exactly the same. It means when you actually catch the shadow or you step on your, your brother's shadow, which the game goes for children, what do you have but a sketch, an outline, you have nothing. You have vanity. You have philosophy and vain deceit. What Paul is saying, the shadows 
were only shadows of things to come, which came in Jesus Christ. He's the substance. He's the body. What do you need, church, to please God? What do you need for salvation? What do you need to grow in holiness? You need the head, which is Jesus Christ, and Him alone, and nothing else. Now, Paul makes it very clear in Romans 14 that we just read that to observe days or foods or abstain from those in the church at Rome was according to every man's conscience. The Jews' conscience had been built up in the fact that we don't eat pork. They couldn't just immediately start consuming that. Their conscience would have condemned them. So Paul says it's okay if somebody doesn't want to eat that, eat herbs, and it's okay if you want to eat it. Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. When it comes to days, we can observe days or we cannot observe days. Be persuaded in your own conscience when it comes to issues of liberty. But here, what was the problem? These were people outside the church, pressing in on the church, and they were demanding that you govern your life according to their days and months and years and feasts, or you didn't meet the standard. That kind of judgment we need to be wary of, we need to be against, and we need to make sure we don't become a church of shadow chasers. So what would that look like? Well, let's consider a few implications and what it would mean to be shadow chasers. How would I know that my list of rules, which is perfectly okay, every family here has at least one rule, I'm sure, right? Some of us may have a lot more. You know, every young person here knows Brother Mike's favorite rule in this church, don't you? Don't run in the building. Right? Don't run in the building. Now, if I take that rule, which I like that rule, it helps us stay safe. It helps you from running into people and maybe they fall and break a hip. It helps you from not falling and busting your face in some way, right? But if I take that rule and say, hey, church B across town, they let their kids run in the church. They are not pleasing God. In fact, I question their salvation. What's happening? We are demanding that another church follow our rules and regulations for which God did not give as a demand. It's okay to have the rule not to run in the church. And guess what? It's okay not to have the rule not to run in the church. Sorry, children. That rule sticks. So, how would you know you are a shadow chaser? First, when you're drawn to the shadows more than you're drawn after Christ. Think of a, a family, a household of Pharisees, which were shadow chasers, as you just heard read this morning. And in this household of Pharisees, they have 100 rules, 100 religious observances. And they posted them on every wall in the house. And every time a child came to dad and said, Dad, what do I do with it? He said, stop. Go read rule 12.1. Okay, I'll go read it. Then the daughter comes and says, Mom, what do I do? Nope. Go read rule 75.4. Over and over, they are directed to the rules. To what happens? They have a relationship with the rules and not with their parents. If we're being drawn to rules rather than Christ, it's likely we have become shadow chasers. Now consider Galatians chapter 4 where Paul is dealing with this issue of rudiments of the world. Rudiments, remember, the ABCs, the uh, first principles of things that they needed to move on from. So those first principles in Colossians 2 would be what? Meat, drink, feast, holy days, new moon, Sabbath. They were all shadows pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. But when He came, the Pharisees could not give up the shadows. Why? Because they were drawn to them for some reason. And Jesus tells us why. Because their hearts were far from God, but they were drawn to their rules and regulations. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this, How be it, when you knew not God, you did service to them who by nature are no gods. 
But now that you know God, or rather are known of Him, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, rudiments, same Greek word, wherefore do you desire uh, again to be in bondage? You observe days, months, years, and times. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed labor in vain. How are they being drawn to the shadows? The word observe means to watch with meticulous care. It means to be so riveted that your eyesight cannot leave what? Days, months, times, years. Now what's wrong with observing? A day or not a day, Paul says. Nothing unless you're drawn to the observance itself and not after Christ. Galatians 1.6 I marvel that you're so soon removed from Him. How? Shadow chasing. Shadow chasing. Paul in Galatians 4 is conveying to the churches of Galatia what the rudimentary period, the Old Testament age was about. It was a time of being under tutors and governors until the time appointed by the Father. He would say in Galatians 4.1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, Differeth nothing from a servant or a slave, though he be heir of all things. But as under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were under the bondage of the rudiments of the world. Now Paul is drawing an analogy from a Greek and Roman culture. Where they literally would take their children, sons, and appoint them to a slave who was a tutor or a governor or a schoolmaster... Galatians 3, which the law was, a pedagogos. And this slave was charged with everything that son did. You didn't eat without the slave. You didn't dress without the slave. You didn't go to the bathroom without the slave. You did nothing without the slave. So when Paul uses the word bondage, don't think of bondage like Egyptian bondage where you're being abused and hurt. Think of it like being kept in or shut up under the faith which would after be revealed. Galatians 3. Wherefore the law is our pedagogos, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So Paul takes that analogy of Greek and Roman culture and says that's what we were. When? In the Mosaic age. We were kept under. We were shut up. We were in bondage. Now kids, you can kind of identify, right? I know you're thinking that, so I'll just go ahead and address what's maybe in your mind. Yeah, I get it. You know, can't do this. Can't do that. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Can't go here. Can't do that. I just feel like I'm in bondage. And there is something that we look forward to when we become of age and moving out, right? That's no offense to parents. You still love your parents. But which one of you would go back after having experienced freedom? A good freedom. A freedom that you should have, a freedom that your parents want you have, a freedom where you're not on their ticket anymore. That's a good freedom. Who would go back and live with their parents voluntarily? None of you would. So Paul makes the point. That's what we were like, the Jewish people, under the rudiments of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, Appointed by the Father, God the Father. What did He do? He sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What does that convey to us? It means you don't deserve to be in the family. You should have never been in the family, but God adopted you. Because, amazing enough, He wanted you to be in His family. And He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Hebrew, Greek, Father. Hebrew and Greek, original words, saying what? For the Jews and the Gentiles. Wherefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Then He says those words. How be it then? When you knew God, you did service to them by nature or no gods. Now that rather you've known God or known no God, how do you turn to the weak and beggarly elements? 
Now, in the Old Testament rudimentary age, that was but shadows and pictures and types leading up to the gospel age and the coming of Christ, which you are now in. Did they not know God as a father? Yes. God revealed himself at least 13 times to the Jewish people as the everlasting father. But what was missing in that revelation? They didn't know the love of a father as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now the Spirit comes through the revelation of the gospel. And what do we cry? He's my father. He's my father. They didn't have in that period of bondage any revelation concerning the love of that father. They were shut up. They were kept up and shut out to the faith afterward revealed, which is now revealed in Jesus Christ. The love of God in Christ that you know and that you have seen. Now why are you turning back then to powerless, useless shadows? Is it because you're being drawn to love something more than the love of a father in Christ? Now that's Paul's argument. They were being drawn to the shadows instead of being drawn to Christ because the Judaizers had duped them into thinking, you've got to observe our laws. We're Jews. Christ is good. You've got to keep a day, a time, a year, and a season and be circumcised or you're not acceptable. I question your salvation. You're inferior. You've got to do it. And the pressure was there. So what does Paul want to happen to this church, the churches of Galatia? Galatians 4.19. My little children, in whom I travail and birth together until now, to Christ be formed in you. Now what would Paul expect if Christ, he saw, formed in them, because that's what he questions, their birth. He says, I need to go back into the operating room and the child labor and, and, and be instrumental in another birth or effectual call. What would he expect to see if Christ was formed in them? He would expect to see Christ dwelling in the hearts by faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Not love for shadows, love for Christ. When Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the freedom wherewith Christ has made you free, and don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage, he means the bondage of shadow-chasing, rule-regulating checklist. That can be okay if you're not drawn to them, but you're drawn to Christ. And what is this liberty? You say, well, it sounds, preacher, like you're saying, throw off all yoke, throw off all rules, and live as you want. Paul checked that in Galatians 5, didn't he? Brothers, you've been called unto freedom. Do not use your freedom as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. What's an occasion of the flesh? Gratify your own flesh. Live as you want. Live free without any rules, without any commandments from God. And if you live in the freedom of loving your neighbor, what's the freedom that Paul is after? The love of God. The great command. See, when we're drawn to shadows, we're being drawn away from the love of God. If that's what draws us, if that's what draws us. Oh, church, beware that we don't become a church of shadow chasers. Chasers. Where it's just all about our list and rules and regulations. And we check the list and we feel good. We feel secure. I mean, it's easy. Check one, two, three, four. And we feel good. Secondly, when you become judges because others aren't following your list of shadows. Mark 7, we heard read this morning. When the Jews came down together to meet Jesus in Jerusalem... They saw his disciples eating bread with defiled hands. That is, they didn't wash. Now, where did that regulation come from? Well, it didn't come from God. They were chasing shadows because they were drawn to the shadows. And the Jews and the Pharisees, except they wash oft, never ate. In fact, they washed cups, vessels, tables, all kinds of things. The self-discipline required 
To baptismos is the word which means submerge, a whole table. Archaeologists have found evidence that they actually did submerge them. That is great effort. The word oft, with regard to washing, is the word there is nipto, just washing body parts, means to fist, scrub, just like that, all the way to the elbow. Let the water run down, come to the elbow, and grind out. Not soil. Their concern was not Escherichia coli or Salmonella. Kids, wash your hands. You may get sick or you may contaminate the food I'm about to eat. It was purification. Jesus, why are your disciples so inferior? Why aren't they being purified by washing like we do? They wanted to govern them by their laws. And what does Mark 7, 2 say that when they saw them, they found fault. You know you're a shadow chaser when you're finding fault with people or churches based on our man-made rules. Not based on what God says. You know, the church is to judge one another. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 5, on the basis of what God says. But these shadows were disappearing in their day and now they're gone. To resurrect shadows and to try to govern other people according to our shadows and say they're necessary according to our checklist is to then judge them for which God forbids. We find fault with one another and we find fault with other people because they don't meet the standards of our own Shadows. You remember these shadow chases called the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and 25? Jesus condemns them and says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint, anise, and cumin, and you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, love, Luke 11, 42, or faith, Luke 11, love. I say that because faith and love are used interchangeably there. They were drawn to the meticulous counting a tenth of herbs. Do you know what time that would take? I mean, if you're kind of ADD-ish like me, could somebody else count this for me? They had passed over mercy and the love of God. Being drawn to shadows mean then what? If you're not doing it exactly the way we are, We find fault. We find fault. Beloved, are you a fault finder on the basis that uh, your family's list, your personal list, your own checklist that you have, others don't meet that list and so you find fault? That is to be a shadow chaser and not to be drawn after Christ. The third thing is, then... Drawn to the shadows, judging others for not meeting our shadows, we then tend to divide and become religious clones. Religious clones. Paul was a religious clone, wasn't he? Acts chapter 26, verse 5. Talking to Agrippa, he would say, Agrippa, all the Jews know what I was about, how I was a member of the straightest sect of the Pharisees. Straightest, the most rigid, exacting, and careful sect. A body of men following their own opinions, producing dissension. So when Paul was a shadow chaser, he became judging of others to the point of killing them, and he grouped himself together with a group of men that looked exactly and did exactly, and probably said exactly what Paul said. And if there's a little variant, then you become a Sadducee, or an Essenine, or the various sects that they had. When we are only comfortable of being around people that are clones like us, it could be because we have a list of shadows, and if they meet the checklist, we're okay. But if they don't, we just divide. Paul says in Romans 14, 1, what? Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. 
means to welcome, to be friends, invite them into your home. That's the person who's not following your checklist. That's the person that is not going to eat what you eat, drink what you drink, observe what you observe. And Paul says, in the church we understand these are not necessary to please God. But for conscience sake, welcome them. Perhaps we're shadow chasers when we begin to divide according to those who meet our list exactly. Exactly. And then finally, when we no longer have compassion for other people, shadow chasing shuts up compassion from others. Luke 18, the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee prayed thus, I thank thee, Father, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men. All right, the first set of checklists was what he hadn't done. Not an extortioner, not an adulterer, not unjust. Those are the don'ts. Check, check, check. I don't do that like this publican does. Now here comes a list of do's. I give tithes of all that I have. Right? Check of the do's, check of the don'ts. This man's a shadow chaser. This man's living to a checklist. This man is judging the publican and all other men to be what? Inferior because they're not following what he deems necessary to be justified. By the way, he did not go down to his house justified. He was drawn to his shadows because his shadows gave him the supremacy over other men. The Pharisees would bind heavy burdens and lay them on men's backs. It would not lift one finger toward them. Why? For they love to be seen of men. And if there's this publican bowed down on his face with all of his sins and you're standing upright, guess who everyone is looking at? You. Here is a man, if he had known the mercy of God, should have been able to tell that man who needed mercy about the mercy of God. But he couldn't. He didn't. Because he didn't know what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They that are sick have no need of a physician. That man did not need a physician, therefore he kept at arm's length those that did because he never knew the doctor. He never knew what healing was about because he's a shadow chaser. You know that neighbor you have that dresses immodestly? Oh, how terrible they dress. They don't meet your checklist. You know that neighbor has bad manners. Oh, how bad their manners are. They don't meet your checklist. You know those neighbors you have They're so ungodly. They don't meet your checklist. If all you can do is talk about where they're falling short of your checklist, you're not inviting them over to witness the gospel. You know why? We've forgotten the mercy of God. Don't let any man judge you in meat or drink or respect of a holy day or new moon or Sabbaths. All these are meaningless. They have no power to sanctify. They are but shadows. We have the body, the substance, who is Christ. And we're drawn to Him. Whatever rules we establish, we'll understand. It has no value for sanctification. All the value is Christ alone. Secondly, in the next warning, verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head. Now you have self-appointed umpires. The compound word here, kata, and the other word speaks of an umpire that can decide against you or to defraud you by deception. I used to be such an umpire years ago when I was approximately 19 years old of the USSSA Association, United 
Slow pitch softball association. I had the authority in every game to call balls and strikes, inbounds, out of bounds, safe out, or eject you out of the game. I could disqualify someone from winning the game by some rule and say, you're out. But it had to be a rule backed by the USSA. These self-appointed umpires do not have such an authority. And what are they after? They want to defraud you of your prize, your reward. What is your reward? What is the reward of salvation? The head. They don't connect with the head. So here's our second point. Beware of losing your connection with the head. Beware. And that's what these judges will try to do. Now what is the means that they want to decide against you like an umpire calling you out, inferior, you don't measure up. They use voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things they've not seen, vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. If we were to use this in the acrostic form, A-B-B-A, we'd say the two A's, the two bookends are what? Voluntary humility, which is nothing more than what? Inflation of your mind. Two contrasts. A fake humility that's nothing more than vainly puffed up or pride. The two centerpieces of B would be worshiping angels, intruding into those things which he had not seen. Which the claim is what? He's seen them. He has seen them. So let's look at those two centerpieces. First, worshiping of angels. This was a problem in the early church, believe it or not. In the 5th century, a theologian by the name of Theodoret of Cyrus, he wrote concerning Colossians 2.18 these words, This disease long remained in Phrygia and Pisidia. Chapels were dedicated to the archangel Michael. He also explains the problem that prompted a synod later, uh, or in the 4th century. He would write, They forbade by a decree the offering of prayer to angels and even to the present time oratories of the holy Michael may be seen among them and their neighbors. In other words, this was a problem in the Colossian culture. The ancient mystic religions were all about worshiping intermediators. Someone that negotiates, that's a go-between between God and man. We only have one mediator between God and man and his name is Christ Jesus. But there's a contemporary fascination still with angels. If you're of any age, you may have remembered in the late 1990s, a television show called Touched by an Angel. It was the third ranking television show with 20 million viewers a week, Christian and non-Christian alike. Fascination. You still today have cards, calendars, lapels, mugs, Angels are everywhere. You can go on a website and there are 50 names of angels you can name your newborn baby, son or daughter. Other websites give names to angels. One website records the Archangel Satchel. When it comes to money matters, Archangel Satchel is your angel. Satchel oversees of wealth and success, especially in the realm of material gain. So they've got all these angels with names for success, Prosperity, wealth, help, protection, guardian angel. One author says that angels are there to help us pour out blessings and to heal us and to give us what we want. Key, give us what we want. You can tell by those names that angels are a good source that we can bend their wills to ours and we can kind of get what we want or we think we can, without any such sacrifices that we know God demands. Some scholars say that Israel's tendency toward worshiping angels began in the exile period under foreign dominance because they thought God had what? Left. He was distant. You ever had that view? God is distant He's got so much going on. Uh, he, he really can't be concerned with the details of my life. 
And so you're tempted to maybe be drawn to some intermediator. An emanation of sorts. It's connected with God like angels. He created them. But someone more accessible maybe. You can make your request too. Well, John 1.14 says this. And the Word was made flesh, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He was made flesh and dwelt, is the word I missed, dwelt. It means to tent or to tabernacle. Now, how much closer can you get than someone coming and setting up a tent in your backyard and you going out dwelling with them? Jesus has tabernacled among us. Ephesians 2, 22. The Spirit is building a habitation for God through the Spirit in the church, a dwelling place. We are the dwelling place of God. How close is that? And then Colossians 1.27, what did Paul say? To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you. Christ among you. Christ is not distant. We don't need other intermediators. We don't need emanations from God. We have all that we need in Christ. He's fully accessible. He's inside you. He dwells within us. He dwells in the church. And we can approach the throne of God through Christ. And what do we find? God is not distant. God is not aloof to our prayers. He hears at the throne of grace. And He gives us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Because Jesus Christ has passed into the heavens and He is the Son of God for us. So, beloved, don't let anyone tempt us, even with the worshiping of angels. Or having a guardian angel, or an angel that we think will do something for us. Yes, angels exist. Yes, angels are sent to minister to the people of God for what purpose? In the Old Testament, what do we see them doing? They're bringing a divine message from God. And that message that the angel is saying, look, don't worship me, obey God. That's their concern. In Revelation 19.10, John was told, Do not worship me by the angel. We're to worship God. And so these men were judging, standing as umpires through the worshiping of angels and through intruding in those things they had never seen. Which the point is Paul is making is that they claimed they had seen it. Right, beware of a religion of visions, right? Ancient mystic religion surrounding the Colossians was heavily based on what you could see in a vision. They had names for the men that had the vision, Hyophants, I think is the name, and the people that were initiated into the mystic religion was called what? Observers. Because they saw something, or so they said they did. We live in a culture where we're tempted every day to worship with our eyes. Because every day we are using our eyes with images on the internet and emanations from social media, mediums, whereby pictures, visions, images come to us And then we come into the church after seeing all the visions with our eyes. And what is our expectation? To see something with our eyes. And what do we do? What does God call us to do? Think. Meditate. Reason. Read. And we don't want to do that. Because we're used to being entertained with visual images. Not wrong, necessarily. But it dulls our minds to the hard work of thinking when a sermon's being preached, or thinking when you read a passage in the Bible. And Paul says, consider what I say, and the Lord give you understanding. He didn't say, look at what I say with a visual picture. Consider it, think. And the Lord gives you understanding and we worship. 
Beware of a religion of the eyes where people then demand churches to give kind of a stage performance for the eyes. Because that's what we're so used to. Let us be a people, a church, who walks by faith and not by sight. Now to walk by faith doesn't mean we don't see anything. We do. We just don't see it with ease. We see it by faith. We see and we know God. And faith, with all the things and the ways it can be described, is thinking with a mind and a heart upon God. So beware of becoming a church that worships with your eyes and therefore we become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Now how does Paul help us with that? Verse 19, not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together with the increase with uh, knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Now, if Paul is going to help us not to be beguiled or judged against by these self-appointed umpires that use worshiping of angels and they use visions that they say they have seen with their vain puffed up minds, Paul says, you're going to have to hold to the head. Now they have lost their connection with the head. So beware through these means and other means that you lose your connection with the head. So how does Paul tell us to keep a connection? It's kind of surprising. Maybe it will be to you. If I were to arc this passage and draw arcs, and connect the dots, I would first say, uh, the head from which all the body having nourishment ministers. I'd make a connection there. We understand that with the imagery of our own body. Everything comes to the body from the head. So when we're holding the body, or holding the head, the whole body is receiving nourishment. But there's something else. The second art goes like this, by joints and bands being knit together, increases. How do you grow? Well, you've got to hold on to the head. If you sever the hand from the body, the hand loses the benefits of the head and the benefits of the body. Paul is making clear, beloved, you will not grow alone. Now, you look at the passage yourself. All the body through joints and bands, having nourishment ministered, and knit together does what? Increases. What happens when you're severed from the body? You don't increase. I do not say you're not saved. That's not what Paul says. You do not increase. You do not grow. God's aim for increase that He gives, notice, it's the increase of God, is through the body. The folly of thinking you can grow in isolation as you meditate on truth alone is countered right here by Paul. And alone you're susceptible to the judges and the umpires. Because you don't have the joints and bands who are holding to the head and then what? Holding to one another. This imagery is clear that what happens is through love the body's built up. Ephesians 4.16, that's the increase of God. And through love, something is torn down. The destructive habits of sin are torn down. Do we realize, beloved, we need preaching and instruction that is Christ-centered, and we need one another to tear down the destructive habits of sin. Because growth is twofold, isn't it? Grow up into the love of God, we're tearing down the love of other things. Paul says that happens from the body, yes, through you as joints and bands. Have you lost your connection with the head? Better question. Have you lost your connection with the body as a joint and a band? I challenge you to think of ways how we can be joints and bands and discipling and ministering and helping one another and being vulnerable to each other and sharing in confidence with one another. Sin struggles, addictions. Because if this passage is true, and it is, the way we hold on to the head 
is we're getting the nourishment of grace and love, and then that's going out to one another to build up and to tear down strongholds which can grip any one of us. Right? Are you in an addiction today? Has some sin grabbed a hold on you that you can't shake? Share it with somebody in confidence and ask them to walk with you and pray with you and to bring the help that a joint and a band supplies. And then you give that help. It's reciprocal. And then lastly, here's the final conclusion Paul makes. Wherefore, wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, and they were, and you are as a believer, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? And that's the question we want to answer. Why? Ordinances. The root word is dogma, which is the ordinances which Christ, the handwriting has what? Nailed to His cross. Why would we be subject to rules and regulations in the way that Paul is saying to be subject? Nothing wrong with being subject to a rule. It's when these men say, oh, it's necessary, or you're not holy. You're not pleasing to God. And then he gives three examples. Touch not, taste not, handle not. There's a progression here. Touch not means a lingering holding on to. Taste not means to put it in your mouth. And touch not means not even the slightest touch. Don't even touch it. See, that's not from God. Even with Eve, when she said, we're not to even touch it. God didn't say that. Let me ask you something. Would she have sinned if she touched it? No, she would not have. You could say, well, that would have led to sin. Okay, but it wasn't sin. You could say, that's not a good idea. I agree. But touching the fruit was not sin. God said, you shall not eat of it. Now, when we take extra biblical commands, things that we make up and say, if you touch it, you've sinned. That's the problem. Which are all to perish with the using. You eat food, it just, Jesus says, goes in the body, goes out of the drought. It's useless. It has no power. It can't do anything for you. So what are we bewaring of in this final passage? Beware of the appearance of wisdom. Verse 23, which things indeed have an appearance or a show of wisdom? And we'll worship humility and neglecting of the body. Now the Pharisees, if you saw them with all the rigor and exactness, you would say, boy, that's the wisdom of God embodied. You know, Will worship means man-made, manufactured imitation worship. It looked like worship. Humility, faults, and then neglecting of the body, self-control. How can self-control be an appearance of wisdom? Is that even possible? Now think about it. You would think that's real wisdom. If you deny yourself something you want, which is in the Bible, that ought to be defined as wisdom. But here's the problem that Paul is presenting. This kind of self-denial is denying yourself something you want for a self-centered reason. Now it gets tricky. Do you realize your self-denial could be nothing but the appearance of wisdom and have nothing to do with God? A neglecting of the body? When I hear people talk about self-denial, I admit I'm pretty impressed. Somebody says, I don't eat sugar. I'm like, Wow. You can kind of get you must be close to God. I mean, who can do that? Right? As a matter of fact, I've been off sugar for three days. Whew. It's pretty big stuff, isn't it? Now let me illustrate how self-denial can be self-centered. If I told you I was off sugar because I wanted you to glory in the fact that I'm off sugar. And be impressed with my self-denial. Now I'm self-centered. Right? See, if my denial of the sweetness of sugar is because of the sweetness of the glory and the praise of men, I'm only given the appearance of wisdom. It looks wise. But it's what self wants as a greater gain 
the sweetness of your praise, that I can say, I'll do away with the sweetness of sugar. That is will worship. Man-centered, self-centered, self-denial. Now what's the counterpart? If you're dead with Christ, chapter 3, verse 1, then you're risen with Christ. Therefore, if I deny myself the sweetness of sugar or the sweetness of sin or the sweetness of man's approval because of the superior sweetness of Christ, now that's godly wisdom. And Jesus says so in Matthew 16, 25. If any man follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and come. Self-denial that's not self-centered. How do we know that? Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life, sweetness, for my sake, greater sweetness, he'll keep it forever. When the gain of Christ is a greater sweetness than what we give up in self-denial, that's true godly wisdom. When the gain of self in the praise of men like the shadow chasers of the Pharisees becomes a sweeter taste than sugar, which I'm willing to give up? That's a man-made religion. That's manufactured religion. And Jesus said their hearts were where? With the sweetness of the gain of self over the sweetness of whatever they gave up. And whatever the pain was with washing and dunking tables or whatever the pain was of tithing mint and anise and cumin and all the trouble and the time consumption, the sweetness of praise was greater than the sweetness of the money they gave away. But when Christ is the greater sweetness, you won't be subject to ordinances. Not the kind that Paul is talking about. That's the ordinances of God? Yes. Do we have to deny ourselves to submit to the ordinances that God gave, the commands He gave? Yes. And how do we do that? The superior sweetness of the sugar called Christ. He's better than what I have to give up. That's a struggle because it's something to give up that we like. Even sin is called pleasure for a season. How will we execute and mortify sin in Colossians 3, 5? How will we ever do that? Because you're risen with Christ. So to be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world and traditions of men is to be raised with Christ and to set your affection on the sweetness of the supremacy of Christ. Now you have a power that shadows can't give you. Now you have a power that angels don't even get close. Now you have a power that's far better than anything you can see. Now you have the power of faith to kill lust and sin of every kind by the supremacy of the completeness of Christ Jesus for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of Christ. And we know that prior to you opening our eyes, the taste of your glory was nothing but bitterness. We hated it, and we hated you. Proven by our actions, proven by our affections, proven 24-7. We had no interest, no desire toward you. But thanks be to you, O Lord, you've opened our eyes and caused us to taste the sweetness of your goodness and your love in Christ. And Lord, we ask, bless us to continue to hold to Jesus and taste it more fully the taste of what we already have in Christ because we're complete. May the taste of holiness be a sweet taste, not because of any rules or regulations or even the commands for which holiness would reflect, but because we're united to the head and because of the sweetness of the vine, the sweetness of the glory of Christ, the sweetness of the aroma of your grace and your love as you hung upon the cross for us. May that be the sweetness that produces holiness, because without it, there is none. Lord, be that for us. We confess we've judged. We confess we've chased shadows and used rules and regulations for our own supremacy, to judge others, to be critical of others, to separate ourselves, and to try to show ourselves superior. Lord, forgive us for that. 
We confess, Lord, we've been fascinated with angels at times in ways that were not appropriate or right, and that we've often worshipped what we can see with our own eyes instead of walk by faith. And Lord, we confess we are often subjected to the ordinances, even of self-discipline, because often even our denial is focused on ourselves. And for all this, Lord, we ask you for forgiveness, and we ask you to make the love of Christ in us more powerful, more tasteful, as we struggle and fight against our sin as a body of joints and bands knit together, and may the head of Christ, may you have all the supremacy and glory and honor for which we ascribe to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.